Welcome to Measures of Truth, a His Dark Materials podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm Alan. And I'm Anya, and today we're discussing the third episode of the first season of His Dark Materials, The Spies. This episode was written by showrunner Jack Thorne. It was directed by Don Shadforth, who made the transition uh, to television episode direction last year after over 20 years of directing music videos. Oh, wow. That's an interesting yeah. career shift. There's like a, lots of big names in there. Uh, lots of um, British pop stars and bands and stuff that anybody we would know work for. Kylie Minogue. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm not, I'm real bad with music. I recognize that name. I was like, I know who Kylie Minogue is because I was in high school in the 90s. I actually, I was in England when I learned who Kylie Minogue was. Yeah. So I got very schooled. <laughs> oh, but also just to point out, I think this is the first episode then directed by a woman. Oh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Would like to see more of that. And one of the executive producers is a woman also, Jane. She's kind Tran- of like is in charge oh. up there at Bad Wolf, it seems. Yeah. So, summary for The Spies. Uh, we start off with Tony Costa and a crew of Egyptians rescue Lyra from her kidnappers and bring her back to their boats. Lyra meets Egyptian leaders John Fa and Farder Coram and decides to tentatively trust them and then settles in with Ma Costa. Mrs. Coulter returns to Jordan College with a bunch of magisterium henchmen to tear it apart looking for Lyra. After hearing a rumor that Lyra is with the Egyptians, the magisterium continues their search for Lyra on the Egyptians' boats, but she's kept safe in a hidden compartment. Afterward, Lyra takes out her fear and uncertainty on Ma Costa, who reveals that Mrs. Coulter is her mother and gives her the TLDR version of her life story before she ended up at Jordan College. Mrs. Coulter and Azriel had an affair that resulted in Lyra's birth. Azriel stole Lyra away and gave her to Ma Costa to take care of and then killed Mrs. Coulter's husband when he came looking for vengeance. The Egyptians call a meeting to debate their next steps. After Lyra gives a rousing speech, they decide to send a party north to look for their missing children. Tony Costa and Benjamin decide to go against orders and break into Mrs. Coulter's house to look for more information. Mrs. Coulter catches them, and although Tony escapes, Benjamin kills himself to avoid getting captured. Meanwhile, Lyra has finally learned how to read the alethiometer and uses it to find out that Benjamin has died and tells Farder Coram. Lyra gets attacked by two spy flies sent by Mrs. Coulter, and she's able to capture one, but the other escapes. The Egyptians decide to head north immediately, and Farder Coram insists that Lyra come with them because her alethiometer skills may be the key to their success. Lord Boreal meets up with his associate in our Oxford and finds out that Grumman, the missing Arctic explorer, 
is not originally from his world, but from ours. Lord Boreal returns to his world and meets up with a sulky Mrs. Coulter to plan their next move. But Mrs. Coulter perks up when the spy fly returns with information about Lyra's whereabouts. I like that you called her sulky. She's so sulky in that scene. I fucking love it. Yeah. I like how Boreal kind of walks in and then very quickly decides to sit as far away from her on that couch as possible. Yeah, <laughs> the really cinematography good. in that shot was really good. This whole show is, is fucking beautiful, but that scene in particular was just gorgeous. Mm-hmm. General feelings? Thank you for your service, general feelings. <laughs> Would you like me to do that again? <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. <laughs> I'm not making fun of you. I'm making fun of the thing that I put in there. Um, I can start because I left m- m- my notes blank on this. I left mine blank because I honestly, I don't know. Like, I like, it was hard to come up with something other than I really liked this episode. But I do think Anya just summed it up nicely when she said it's fucking gorgeous. And that is very true about this episode. Yeah, I really like this episode. I made more of an effort to really pay attention to the visuals since Alan keeps talking about how good they are <laughs> and they keep on kind of like <laughs> whooshing over me. But yeah, I continue to love the visuals and I really liked a lot of the storytelling and subtle character changes um, that they're making from the book. So Me too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This, this is great, uh, you know, for having like a different director um, who is not, uh, from a cinematic background, like I, I could not have been able to detect like a difference from one, two and three, you know what I mean? Like they all look fantastic. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, it's in terms of like having a, a visual style for the show, I think Don Shadworth, like just, I mean, uh, Don Shadforth did like a great job of maintaining that high quality. Like you guys are saying. Yeah, when I was watching this, like all I could think about, I had just rewatched the movie and I don't really want to talk about that. But like it put me in mind of like different adaptations of the story and we've read the book and I'm I'm trying to figure out, you know, with all the differences and stuff that are happening in the show and especially in this episode, like like what is like who is the show for? Is it like. It's not a straight up adaptation of the book because I feel like the book is an adventure story and this is much more of a psychological drama. Like once I once I came upon that idea of a psychological drama, like everything kind of clicked and made more sense to me because Lyra, you know, we've talked about how the focus seems to be off of her. She doesn't seem to be the same kind of liar and storyteller that she was from the book. And she's like, kind of less powerful or less able to influence people than she was in in the novel but she is more like psychologically realistic and so are all the adults around her like mm-hmm. i like i feel like if you took everything exactly the same in this world and took the lyra from the novel it wouldn't feel right like she would like these adults feel more real than from the book and if she could manipulate them not manipulate them but if she told like these crazy stories and the, and it worked the same way it just wouldn't work like the tone and everything is just so different and so i feel like this is less for like people who are looking for a straight up adaptation of the book but maybe for people who read the book you know back when it came out and have grown up and had kids of their own and are now watching this and like yeah, I see myself in Lyra and in Mrs. Coulter and in Lord Boreal and like 
having a job is hard and having kids is hard and being a kid was hard. And like, mm-hmm. that's what this show is, I think. Like, I'm so you're saying it's for millennials. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think so. It took me three episodes to get to it. That's the best part of being in your 30s and 40s is that everything is made for you. Like, finally. <laughs> right. Yeah. I will say, because you brought up, are they doing an adaptation of the book? I don't think they are at all. I think mm-hmm. they're doing an adaptation of the series. Mm, interesting. You know? yeah. And that changes because like you've, you've, oh, I don't know if we've talked about this on recording. We've definitely talked about this off recording about how Philip Pullman is a pantser when he writes. Right. So he didn't necessarily know what the tone of the second and third book were going to be when he wrote the first book. Mm-hmm. And so I can definitely see where they're not just bringing in the plot from the second two books, but bringing in some of the feel. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. It would be like if somebody just, for example, adapted like Lord of the Rings first and then went back and tried to adapt The Hobbit in a similar (laughs) tone and style. Right. And like didn't know what to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. That's hard to do. (laughs) Turns out. Yeah, I think you did a really good job of kind of putting your finger on it because literally all of the characters are different, you know. Mrs. Coulter and Lord Asriel are much more three-dimensional than they were in the book. They like, we get to see more of them and feel their motivations more clearly. And Lyra, too, you know, like in this episode, we get to see her be afraid and angry in ways that she doesn't really get to be in the book. Yeah. and I will say, you said that she doesn't have as much power or manipulation over people, but she gets up in front of the Egyptians and gives a good speech. That's and great. it does seem to be the beginning of the changing of their minds. Like, she's not lying to them, but she does kind of get everyone's attention and do some crowd control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess, yeah, uh, she's totally the main character. And I guess I'm just looking at like her set of abilities and it seems like lying and storytelling are not as prominent as they were in the novel. Which is going to be problematic for them later when that's actually a really big part of who she is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. We'll see what they do with it. Like, are you going to have a psychologically sophisticated bear society? Like, I don't even know what that looks like. So I don't know how later elements of the story will fit in you know, with this tone and look, but like, I feel like I, now I understand it. Not that I was like super confused with the first two episodes, but like now that we have like them to compare against each other, I'm like, okay, so this is what this show is. Um, and I almost want to go back and like watch the other two to like, just get it better. I mean, you can do that if you want. No one, no one is stopping you. (laughs) It's true. I think that might be the longest general feelings section we've had to date. Sorry. We just have a well, lot of feelings. We, we did some Fine. episode discussion also. Uh, everyone's favorite part. I can I can go because we kind of lead right into it from my bit about Lyra. Um, I just, I always love a good inspiring speech. And Lyra and John Fa, I almost said farter quorum. Jesus. Lyra <laughs> and John Fa give a good inspiring speech in this one. And there's... There's good music with it, and it's really into it. And I I thought the scene started off a little clunky, but they really brought it all together at the end, and it was it was good. Yeah, I love that scene. I think it's it's really great. And like speaking of like the visuals and stuff, I love the way that whole thing is lit and the 
you know, how everybody is like gathered around mm-hmm. in that tight community and space and how everybody gets to have a voice. It's like, you know, you contrast that with like the magisterium where like everybody's absolutely silent except for Mrs. Coulter, who's like losing her mind, uh, screaming at people. It's just like the contrast between these two societies is like very strong in this episode. And that's one of the best moments where everybody gets to speak up, including the child. Everybody treats her like a person instead of like, you Mm -hmm. be quiet, you or like a thing to fight over. Yeah. It's, it's fabulous. And I also liked, um, Oh, okay. Sorry. My mind just blanked there for a second. I also liked with, within the speech, John Fa says something like, like they'll tear them all apart. Like he's very violent in his speech. We shall strike the strength out of them. Shall leave them ruined and wasted, broken and shattered, torn to a thousand pieces and scattered to the four winds. And we get the idea there that they are definitely going to be like, they're not just out to rescue the kids. They want mm. revenge. That's true. I hadn't thought about that. Surprising no one, uh, my favorite things from this episode were basically all Mrs. Coulter and her monkey. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Like, speaking of visually striking images, that rage scene where the monkey just kind of, like, slowly closes the door in the room, and then you see the feathers mm. explode everywhere. Mm-hmm. was completely amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved her her roof scene when the monkey was looking out at her from inside the window and the face she makes when Benjamin jumps down the elevator shaft is just amazing. <laughs> There's that really creepy moment before that where she is like petting Benjamin. Oh, and, like, oh she's so <laughs> fucking creepy. <laughs> I really loved in that scene where they show her kind of like pounding on him and then they cut to the monkey pounding on the bird in the exact same shot Mm, or like mm. it's shot exactly the same way. And it's so good. Yeah. the Yeah. The way those demons are used in that particular scene is great. I think that bit set up the like connection between uh, human body and soul demon more than any other thing that they've done so far. Yeah. And it's it's a that's a totally unique thing to the show too it's not like they adapted you know something out of the Mm -hmm. book for that so well in a way they kind of did because a spy does die after doing some spying (laughs) there's a lot of spies in this uh episode i guess that's why they named it that i i really like the moment at the end there where you were talking about you know with them on the couch uh (laughs) lord boreal is like becoming appalled with Mrs. Coulter when it's like, it gives me like, there's this weird calibration that happens in that scene to me where Lord Boreal is like telling the magisterium like, Oh yeah, I got, I'll handle Mrs. Coulter. And he's telling Mrs. Coulter like, Oh yeah, I'll do whatever you want. And then he's off like doing his own thing and playing every side against the middle and like really playing a dangerous game and skating the edge. And then he sees what Mrs. Coulter's doing and he's like, are you out of your mind? It's like, <laughs> it's like the pot is calling the kettle black. And yeah, there you're when crazy is questioning crazy. You're in very deep. It was just a, a great way to end the episode. Interesting. I interpreted Lord Boyle a little bit differently than you did. Mm-hmm. Just that I don't I didn't get that he was playing every side so much that I honestly thought he was just completely taken in by Mrs. Colder. 
oh, like he's her boy. I yeah. I don't know. It seems like the uh, the magisterium sent him off on a job, and then when he's on when he's on Earth, the guy is like, "Is this? Did your bosses tell you to do this, or are you doing this?" And he's like, "You're doing this yourself." And then he basically like tells that dude, "You're a coward. Shut up." No, I agree with that. That's why I think it's so interesting that Mrs. Coulter can manipulate him. Mm. Well, because I do think he has a lot of power and a lot of ambition. But I do think every time we've seen him with Mrs. Coulter, he just does her bidding. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Coulter, whatever. Well, she's the craziest one in the room. Like, you gotta, y- yes, ma'am. Um, yeah. Let me go do that and leave while I do that. I'll be right back. And she has so- a huge gun. Yeah. <laughs> We we were watching, and and uh, Christina was like, "Is that the gun from Wyatt Earp, the Winona Earp show?" <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> it is very large, but I guess they needed a good visual when when Benjamin's bird flies into it. I don't, it's great. I don't know. Yeah, it's just huge, though. I was like, "Is that allowed in Britain? Do they? Do they even?" I don't think there are. I think it's hard to get any guns in Britain. Mm-hmm. But in our world. Well, true. True, yeah. If you're allowed to murder someone for fucking your wife, then why not have some guns? <laughs> yeah, and like Mrs. Coulter doesn't, although I guess I guess Benjamin kills himself, but she doesn't face any consequences about shooting mm-hmm. him. And uh, now might be a good time to point out that Benjamin's demon behaved the way that a demon should behave when their human dies. Yes. Unlike the butterfly demon of the right. journalist last episode. Yes, that was, I was very happy to see that. And I also really loved how the monkey was like, oh, and tried to like catch the. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was a really good bit. It mirrors the look on her face. Yeah. That was really good. And um, especially when you appreciate that it's CGI on a TV budget, like the monkey has a lot of character. Yeah, I do think, I think Pan has less character, but I do think that they've put it where it needs to be. Which is with the monkey. Pan, yeah. Like, I think Pan just needs to kind of be, he needs to have personality through speech, but because the monkey doesn't talk. Yeah, it, you're right. It needs the, it, it, it needs the facial expressions and the creepy moving and stuff more than, than Pan does. Although I do wish Pan changed shape a little bit more often. We should give credit too, because you're saying that's really good CGI on a TV budget. And I agree with that, but also uh, for maybe not everybody knows that a lot of the stuff done with the demons was done with puppets uh, there on the set. And so they had a visual reference and the puppeteers were doing a lot of acting uh, through the puppets, you know, live on film. And so how much of that performance comes from that? I'm not really sure, but I imagine quite a bit. Uh, Yeah. And I assume it would then, it would also inspire the performance from the human actors. Right. Yeah. It gives you, it helps. Yeah. I don't think Pan had a puppet. I could be wrong. I haven't seen any pictures of it, though. I've only oh, I, seen pictures of the monkey and, and Hester. I think I think it was. Yeah, I think I've seen pictures of it. I think so. Oh, I want to see this Pan puppet. I do recommend looking up pictures of the puppets because they are funny looking. Yeah, they do look weird. That's true. But they're cool. Like, I love that they did that, that the, yeah. the actors are not just like, OK, you know, I'm sure that, you know, these are great professional actors and they could totally just fake it to air but like it's Mm -hmm. so great that there's something there yeah and that they had something to look in their eyes Mm -hmm. creepy puppet eyes (laughs) but uh did we find any problematics in this episode 
Yeah, I mean, I had some problems with Mrs. Coulter and her backstory that we get in this. Mm-hmm. There was like, Ma Costa says something like about she is the way she is now because of the entire sex scandal with Asriel and yeah. the way that everybody found out. And that is like a weird thing to inject into the story. And I'm not sure what they mean by it, whether they mean that like society, the society is like so conservative that it, it kind of like took a brilliant, ambitious woman and kind of like drove her insane with shame or that what I'm worried about and what it actually feels like to me is that she is somehow a failure as a woman because she's not there for her daughter and she's not like the heart of the family and she's not keeping her man satisfied. Um, and so all of that is like evil, you know, um, in terms of like how women are quote unquote supposed to be, you know, like teleologically speaking that you're like made to have babies and nurture, which is bullshit. But, um, but that's what it feels like the show is saying. (laughs) Well, I feel like I've made my, myself clear that I think teleology is bullshit when you apply it to people. But um, yeah. Only only to cell phones and bananas. Yeah, I mean, then it's useful. Don't eat your cell phone. That's bad. I also really hated that line from Ma Costa when, when she said, you know, that's why she is the way she is. Like, not only is it problematic the way you just pointed out, but it's also wrong. <laughs> right. <laughs> like... And it doesn't make sense. Like, oh, something bad happened in her past and now she's evil. Like, I don't... That that makes Mrs. Coulter so much less interesting. Like, was she a good person before that? I don't think so. Yeah, it doesn't seem... Yeah, exactly. Like, given how sophisticated, like I said before, everybody is psychologically, that seems very flat. That, like, your life can take a turn in that way. And it... I don't know. I don't know where the show is going with that. That might just be Macosta's opinion, but I do feel like the the crazy gets turned up on Mrs. Coulter in this particular episode. Yeah. And like even if the show isn't saying that that is actually the way it is and that's just how Macosta thinks it is, if you haven't read the books, you know, and you're just watching this, you're going to think that's the way it is. Mhm. Yeah. So, it was a poor line. So the one thing I'm a little nervous for is how they're going to treat Grumman's wife and her quote-unquote mental health issues because I think that could be done poorly. Uh, We'll see how it ends up. I feel like... So I've never read The Subtle Knife in a way that I was like looking for problematics. Mm -hmm. So I can't say for sure, but I seem to recall that it was not done horrifically. That's good, yeah. I mean, you just... You don't want to see mental health stigmatized in a bad way. And then the other thing is not directly from the show, but something that I just read in real life that made me think about the show and all of the conversations that we've been having about Egyptians as analogs for Roma people, that basically there's a really horrifying genocide basically happening against the Roma people in Bulgaria right now. Um, And we'll put the link to the Guardian article um, that I read talking about it in the show notes, but it's pretty horrible. So mm-hmm. not just theoretical or in the past, still ongoing. Yeah. I also think the show made a weird choice in this one when they were having that good inspiring speech and John Foss shouts out Egyptians over and over again. 
I'm like, why wouldn't they have downplayed that? Yeah. Like, if they weren't going to change it from the book, why would they have... I don't... That seems like an odd choice also. It is, like, a little nationalistic or... Yeah. Well, just, like, emphasizing a word that's very close to a racial slur. Sure, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. That whole thing is, like... I know that we talked about it in the book, and it's, like, the that he derived the the war the Egyptians from that slur for Roma people. It's complicated though because at the time that he wrote it, the international like you know, like the organization that was representing them to the UN was named after that word. Oh, I didn't uh, realize that. And it was boarded by those people themselves. This was like, you know, that is just the there's really no other name to have used at the time. I mean, well, he could have used their, but that's what they were calling themselves is what I'm saying, I guess. So it's, I mean, weird. both of our countries have, you know, legal processes or acts or whatever, like, uh, well, called like the Indian act or something like that. And, you know, it does not refer to people from India. Oh no. I mean like they so, made an organization themselves and, and then were like this. And now we're going to go talk to the UN and this is not like the UN made a thing to talk to them. It was like, this is our, like the NAACP or something. But like, anyway, it doesn't matter. Like, like, I don't know what else he could have called them, but, but the show could have called them something else. Or like you said, not had them yell it over and over. It seemed a weird choice to me is all. Yeah. Although again, I liked that scene. So I, I don't know. No, yeah. That's good. So now that we're in the meat of the episode, I guess I'll start with the way the episode itself starts, which is to say the Magisterium ransacking Jordan College. Um, and it reminded me so much of uh, this movie called The Lives of Others that Alan and I recently just recorded on our other show, Hallowed Ground Storycast, um, that's set in East Germany uh, before the fall of the Soviet Union. And just the way that it portrays the like fascist power and control the way that you exert your influence just by going in and fucking shit up. You know, it's like not even just that you're looking for things, it's that you're trying to inflict pain at the same time. And that that's like a very specific type of intimidation that I wouldn't necessarily have thought about it, except that we recently just watched that movie like three times and then talked about it for a couple hours. When when Mrs. Coulter rips those pages out of the book and then burns them and then just puts the book down like she didn't even care what it was yeah i don't think i've ever hated her more <laughs> yeah like do whatever like, you want murder children but like don't fuck with books <laughs> it was also just like a really shitty thing to do like when she does the shitty things to kids she has a reason you know she has a scientific like it's it's shitty but she has a scientific goal that is happening there this was literally just because she was like well fuck this book this book in particular <laughs> It's that scene is like you again, you see like how fragile she is in a way that like, you know, she she just cracks um, after he he burns her with with that line about like uh, I had her for years and you had her for one day and lost her like this. This is your own problem. You created this problem. It's not my fault. You can't you can't handle your business. And then she's like, burn the motherfucker down. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm done with you. He can like, you know, she she just 
it's like thin ice there. There's all this rage boiling underneath there. And, and she looks like she's composed and like, she's all set, but actually she's like a mess under there. That's my favorite thing about Mrs. Coulter is that she's a mess. Yeah. Or at least this, this TV show, Mrs. Coulter, Yeah, that she's a mess, but she's hiding it. And she's still, she's still in control and still manipulating others. She's a very confident and competent mess. Yeah. High functioning rage machine. Yep. She's- and I think too, the other thing that that scene made me think of was just the idea of scholastic sanctuary that they've been talking about so much. And I think this really highlights the way that the scene made me wonder like how much the the producers of the show were trying to say something about academic freedom in our world. I'm not exactly sure how much of a thing it is in the UK, um, but at least in the US, you know, there's been conflict recently between the government and scientists about, you know, climate change and what kind of research they want to fund with that. Um, and for the most part, you know, you can't just do whatever you want, right? But for the most part, the decisions about what kind of research gets funded and what kind of research is supported is being made by people in that field. And this shows just like how how bad it is when you have people who don't care about that making those decisions or like trying to exert their influence in other ways. Yeah, it's interesting that they've taken this idea that was like barely a thing in the book and and made it a big thing. Yeah, it's a much bigger theme in the TV mm-hmm. show here than it is in the book, which makes me think that they are trying to say something about it. Um, yeah. But also maybe it's just that we're spending a lot more time with the magisterium here than they do in the book. Also true. It's weird also in that like a couple episodes ago, like I was really flip about Galileo and his, you know, um, trial with the church and stuff like that. But a big reason why that happened, that whole thing was because of the Reformation and the emergence of the Lutherans and like the way that that shattered Catholic control over Europe. Like the it, it's exactly the same kind of thing that you're saying, Anya, and and what's portrayed here in places where Catholicism was dominant, like in Italy, where Galileo was you had to get approval for any kind of science that you were doing through the church if you wanted to get money, like any kind of money, really, because all the money was kind of coming through the church. And so it was like certain things you had to tread lightly or you just were forbidden from studying them at all in Catholic controlled regions. And But that's a thing that comes out of the Reformation and is not really true before the Reformation, there was there was a lot of like debate and stuff that was happening between scholars in Catholic Europe, but it, all of it was like in Latin and well hidden from regular people. And so it wasn't a big problem for the church because, you know, the lay people had no idea that these like debates were going on between people about like, well, is Aristotle right? Or is this or is, you know, the book of Genesis right? Or and and that was like a big debate, but it wasn't a debate that was happening in front of people the way that it was after the Reformation. And so the church didn't have to crack down on it. And what, what they're showing here is like the church is cracking down on it in a way that looks like post-Reformation to me. I don't know what that means historically. Like there's obviously been scientific advancement since the Middle Ages, but there's I, I presume there was never any Reformation because there wasn't in the book. Anyway, it's hard to tell exactly what's going on but 
I think that's what they're, you know, they're doing a little bit of like German fascism and a little bit of like, you know, like Protestant reactionaryism that happened against Harry Potter and against this book <clears throat> and the Catholic reactionaryism that happened all kind of like balled up into one. In the scene where she's with the master, the master of Jordan College, mm-hmm. she does this thing and it bothers me so much where she says alethiometer three times. Oh, I really love and that. And sounds it out. Mm-hmm. Every single, like, Alethe Almatar. And I'm like, oh my God, I why are you that. doing this? See, to me, that's like, and I'm going to go back to my Star Wars thing of like the way that Darth Vader and the Emperor over pronounce everything because, like, that's what evil people do, I guess. <laughs> that's how they talk. It's just the aesthetic of evil. Uh huh. Well, it did you really don't bother know me. The power so. of the darks, you know, like <laughs> nobody says power like that. That's not how you talk, but that's how he talks, and that's how she. T- so I just really like it. It's like scary when she's doing it. I think. I don't know. Can you imagine just having like a random conversation with James Earl Jones? <laughs> like, I've never how- fantasized about that. Definitely, <laughs> but like, how would you? How would that even go? I can't picture it. It's weird. That has nothing to do with its dark material. <laughs> Sorry. Keep bringing up Star Wars. Okay, so speaking of Mrs. Coulter, I love that both she and Lyra clearly have a thing for roofs. And I think <laughs> that they did this intentionally, right? To Yes. Before they reveal the um, mother-daughter bond between them to show this sort of like, I don't know, mystical mother-daughter connection that Lyra spent her whole life running around and making the Jordan roofs her home and now Mrs. Coulter is, you know, playing chicken with herself. And I love that they have her demon watching from inside the building instead of out there with her. It's like a very subtle, but I think intentional choice. And like you, I can't remember if it was Kate or Alan who brought this up in an earlier episode, but that like the demon, the her demon's distance from her is symbolically showing her emotional alienation and isolation from herself. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about the roof thing as like a mother-daughter bond. It's weird to think of them as mother-daughter. I don't know why, but it is. Well, because they like basically haven't spent any time together since the moment she was born. But yeah, but you know. But yeah, that's an interesting thought that, that they both just like being on. Well, and they had that whole conversation about heights earlier. Right. Which felt honestly a little weird and out of place in that episode. But now that mm-hmm. apparently this is a theme that they're going to be hammering, um, it all makes sense now in the context of this episode. I was like, oh, I see why they had that conversation earlier. Mm-hmm. I also love with that that Mrs. Coulter is like, you know, like flirting with the edge there and and almost goes over. Um, but then later in the episode, Benjamin has no problem jumping off. Mm. Oh, um, I didn't even think about that. And he leaves his demon. You know, that's who knows if he died because of the separation from his demon or because he hit hit the floor first. You know, which one killed him? Mm. Who knows? Well, separation from demon doesn't necessarily kill you. It just hurts a lot. Yeah. Mm. So it's like, you know, I, I see like a connection there between his willingness and ability to jump and her like, like part of Mrs. Coulter, I feel like, is that she's trapped in a certain way like she she has things that she wants for herself and she wants you know that like position and the power and the importance and all of that but at the same time it means that like the magisterium has a piece of her and she's not free 
you know, like when she talks to Lyra in the first episode about like when you go to the Arctic, you're completely alone and you're completely magnificent and you're like completely free to her. Like, I think that's a big thing to her that like being alone is freedom for her. And she's like trapped in a certain way. I think she wants to get out of this. And that's part of what standing on that ledge is. And Benjamin was like willing to die, you know, for what he was there to do Mm -hmm. to protect like his people. And she doesn't have anything like that. She's kind of trapped. Okay. I have a slightly different thought on this and I've put it down in the spoiler sections, but I like how I like your thought about, no, I can't say anything. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to talk about a lot about this in the spoiler section because I loved that scene with her on the roof. It was fabulous. It was great. It's really good. Okay. So we've talked a little bit about Lyra and her actual but not emotional mother. Let's talk about Lyra and Makosta because I really, really loved the decision to have Makosta deliver Lyra's backstory instead of Farter Corum, mm-hmm. like Pullman had in the book. Mm-hmm. Um. Like, for one, I'm just glad that that actress uh, got more screen time because she's great and that... She is so good. And that we had another, like, intense scene between two female characters um, because there's a lot of dudes in this book. (laughs) And I also really loved the blocking of the scene Mm -hmm. because in the book, it's basically just, like, Lyra and Fodderkorum sitting down and then it's just, like three straight pages of exposition. And that comes across as like really stale and boring on TV. And so the way that they had Lyra and Makosta like constantly moving around, um, the blocking just made it feel really dynamic. And you almost like didn't even notice that it was just a big exposition dump. And I love that Lyra got to be emotional and angry and afraid and blow up in a way that we didn't get to see in the book very much. Yeah, I also I'm happy and impressed that they did it all without uh, without flashbacks. I know you were convinced that there were going to be flashbacks. <laughs> I was very convinced. So I'm very happy to see that there isn't and that they still like got everything across. And it was very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that actress really like carries it. And Daphne Keene does like a fabulous job. And Marie of, Duff like, is the actress's name. Yeah, sorry. I I love the, you were talking about the blocking. That was something that I definitely noticed the way that the scene starts out and they're like kind of on two different banks of um, like a little footbridge Yeah, in between them. And they literally are like bridging the past and like bridging their relationship. And this is all like a part of this larger story that's going on with Lyra where at the, you know, when she first gets into the Egyptian community, John Fa tells her like we're going to earn your trust we're not going to like you're not our prisoner we're not going to force you to obey like just basically the opposite of Mrs. Coulter and this is part of that whole thing where Ma Costa is like you know she's telling Lyra something that she probably shouldn't tell her like this is not information that John Fa would be like yeah go ahead do that but she's doing it because she cares about her and because she feels like this is the best thing to do yeah and I love that they have Lyra come to trust the Egyptians a lot more slowly in the TV show. In the book, well, in the book, we get a lot more exposition up front about how Lyra was always hanging out with the Egyptians. And and I think book Lyra was much more familiar with them and their community Mm -hmm. than TV show Lyra is. So it makes sense just like from a practical standpoint that she wouldn't be as happy to just be like, oh, I'm Egyptian now. Um, (laughs) But also it's like a nice character 
beat to see her go through that of like slowly coming to trust them. This community that she like hasn't really been a part of since she was, you know, a couple months old. Also in that scene, we do finally get to see what I assume is Makosta's demon. Yeah, I noticed that at the very end. Yeah, there is a bird. We don't know the bird's name. Never get to hear the bird talk, but it's there. Yeah, it makes you wonder where it was during all of that kitchen shenanigans with the fire. I feel like what they're going for in these small Egyptian boats is that the demon birds sit up top while the humans are below, which I guess from like a money standpoint makes sense. From like a this is how we live our lives standpoint, okay, wait, I don't like it all. Do demons whatever. eat or poop? I don't think so, okay. personally. No. They have no energetic so. expenses. They're just like completely fueled by their humans. We never right. in the books see them eat. Okay, We only ever see the humans eat. The, the bodies eat, I guess. To, and to the world building point that you just made, like when Tony comes onto the boat early in the episode, his demon settles down next to her demon on top of the boat. They like make a point to show that. Mm. Oh, I missed that. And yeah. And then she knows that like, oh, Tony's here. Uh Right. Yes. That makes sense. Oh, I totally missed that as well. Yeah. I like the idea of it because you see later when they infiltrate Mrs. Coulter's apartment, they use the demons as like lookouts in the hallway because they Mm -hmm. don't know about like the secret monkey passage. Uh um, I can't believe Lyra didn't warn them about that. Yeah. She tells them like about the study. Yeah. She told them where to look for the documents, but not that like the monkey can get really far away from Mrs. Coulter. And also there's a secret passageway. And also the monkey's creepy as shit. (laughs) Like it must be like, how does nobody go to to Mrs. Coulter? How's nobody like, so what's, what's your monkey's name? And what Mrs. Coulter just stares them down, I guess. (laughs) How dare you? Like, do you think her parents' demons just never named the monkey? And that's maybe one of the reasons she is why she is? I don't know. (laughs) It's what happens when your monkey doesn't have a person or when your demon doesn't have a personality or name. You become a psychopath, narcissist. I think the monkey does have a personality. It's just not a good one. Yeah. It seems very sad all the time or angry. All right, so we have to have our weekly knit wear check-in. Oh, that's right. That needs to be its own section, actually. Yeah. So Makasta is wearing a very nice knit sweater under her overalls, which is a choice. Not one I would ever make, but you do you, Maggie. It kind of worked with that necklace. Honestly, until I was specifically looking for it, I didn't really notice it. But once I noticed it, I was like, geez, okay. Um, so it's not just Billy who has nice knit things. I still don't know who's spending their time knitting these very intricate pieces but that's fine that's fine and then they give lyra this really great cardigan and somebody needs to write up a pattern for that so that i can make it for myself to match your I hat don't, I don't, to match my hat which i have to redo oh that hat's not great i love that all that detail is there that, that's cool yeah i wouldn't i don't know enough about that stuff but but i love that it's like all there for you to if you know it you can see it that's cool yeah i think whoever the costume designer was definitely put a lot of thought into the Egyptian aesthetic, uh, and it's mm. it's very unique. I like it. I also like it, and how they all kind of have oil stains, and it's mm. very good. She is also wearing leather armbands in the kitchen. I did not notice that. And like, like I have, I burn myself a lot, but I have not quite succumbed to armor in the kitchen. So <laughs> I think that's an extreme choice. So I I saw those. I did. <laughs> So what I thought those were, and I didn't see your comment about this, but like, I thought that was like where her um, demon would go. So it doesn't like scratch up 
her arm. That makes but... so much more sense. <laughs> but I don't know if that's right. You just got distracted by all of the fire. <laughs> because we don't see her demon in that scene. I just, yeah. my brain didn't go there. But yes, having it on as somewhere where her bird demon can land does make more sense than me being like, man, I burn myself a lot too, but I don't know about <laughs> leather arm guards. All right. Thank you. Thank you for <laughs> fixing that in my brain for me. And we do also see her fling some flour at the gas stove and it goes. Oh, I thought it was spices, then, but I mean, it doesn't really well, matter. Well, it does matter from a foreshadowing perspective. Oh. Yeah, I thought that too. I thought that was going to come into play and then it didn't. And I was like, huh, they, if that feels like a setup. I can't tell if you're being vague on purpose or if you've all just forgotten the book we just read. No, I don't remember that oh, at all. Oh, oh, yes. Now I remember. <laughs> I was no, not I being vague this. on purpose, but... But, yes. but it's clearly oh like a setup, though. Yeah, you're... Yes. Okay, never mind. Never mind. It felt like something they were setting up for this episode. I expected the boys to do something to, like, get away that was related to it or something like that, but it just right. never happened. It's just one of those things that's like a Batman episode or something like Master Bruce, I made a new invention. This is, but you'll never what use could this belt thing possibly be? And then that's like the thing that gets him out of the situation in that episode. That that's literally like I was like, that is a conspicuous thing to do that nobody ever does in a kitchen. Oh, like, I just thought it was like a cute weird Egyptian thing and you know trying to make her feel safe and at home no it does that it does that too but it was like you know like I'm looking at this like you know from mechanically yeah. I was like you don't spend time doing that in, unless you're so anyway I'm not narratively suspicious enough <laughs> unlike you I guess so I feel like all the Egyptians we've seen so far farter quorum aside have bird demons yes yeah are we how do we feel about this. Didn't we talk about this last episode? Didn't I complain about it then? I didn't edit that one. Oh. So I don't I don't know. I forgot <laughs> I think, I mean, everything we talked I th about. <laughs> I think it's bad, but it's yes, you did talk about this last time. Okay. I think it's bad, but on purpose. Like that's part of the dystopian feel of the world. Do you think Farter Cordum feels like an outcast? Because he's the only <laughs> one with a cat? Or you should know, he you be like he should be the king because the cat is like a predator of birds. That's what I was going to say. Like, yeah. it's a weird thing for him to have a cat with all these birds, right? Huh. Although some of those birds look like definitely or definitely look like they could carry a cat off and eat it. Well, basically <laughs> what, what Alan said last time that made me feel a little less bad about it was basically that I think it's better than the whole servants all having dog demon things because being Egyptian and like living on a boat is a very different thing than being a servant. It's like less directly related to how you fit in with the rest of society. And so like your conception of yourself as like belonging to this particular group and living in a particular way where having a bird is much more convenient. They had the whole conversation about how like moles wouldn't be good demons for Egyptians who live on boats. Yeah. Right, you know? yeah. So it's like if the way that you see yourself influences how you turn out and like your ethnic group is going to have a big impact on your identity. No one grows up being like, oh, man, I really, really want to be like a kitchen servant. You know, you don't like yeah. identify as a servant class. Well, I'm not British. I don't know. Aristocracy is different there. But 
at least from the American perspective, that's not what we want. Well, and their king, quote unquote, is like right down there in the with them. There doesn't seem to be a huge distinction mm-hmm. in like leadership and followers among the Egyptians. Yeah, well, it's I'm, very egalitarian. Yeah, I'm just saying like all Egyptians having birds seems less problematic than all servants having dogs. Yeah, it yeah, does. Yeah, because yeah. it makes sense that if you're on a boat mm-hmm. and you don't get a fish, you'd get something that can at least. Have some freedom while you're on the water. Well, you don't want to be that poor yeah. sailor who got a dolphin. Yeah, yeah. Well, could never I was going to say ashore. too. Like this reminds me that uh, we don't get this uh, same sex demon situation that we did in the book, which happens in this part. Oh yeah, that it's revealed that the person who's watching Lyra back at Jordan College was uh, like right. an Egyptian in some way, and then he. Uh, had a same-sex demon and so that there's like a kind of erasure happening here of a possibly homosexual character well i think they could be putting that in their pocket for later given i would love to get the get the gay lgbt people out of your pocket like that should be on front street yeah i'm just saying that having that character be in a flashback like that doesn't translate to TV super well. So if they are going to have a LGBT character of some kind with a same-sex demon, like it needs to be someone who matters in the present story and not just like mm-hmm. a random background character. I guess what I'm saying is like we haven't had any of it at all. Like it could have been there since episode one. No, that's And fair. it's not. And, and I- like even at the point where it's specifically mentioned in the book, it's also absent and so now i'm like i have very little hope that it will ever happen should have made roger gay is (laughs) where i come down on that based on just right now (laughs) okay well a uh there are lgbt main characters that will come up later Mm -hmm. but that they i mean much later at least in the books and b other than mrs coulter and lord asriel we don't know anybody's orientation that's true. Right. So I mean, we don't even maybe, really know theirs. All we know is that they had that's true. heterosexual sex at least once. Yeah. So I'm I'm not saying that this makes it better because obviously it 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 doesn't really. But I do think that so far at least it's just not something the show is addressing, mm-hmm. like think, sexuality in general. I think there is an implication. Speaking of that, that the sexual culture of the Egyptians is like, we haven't seen anything about like married couples or anything. Yeah. And Ma Costa's children all look very different from each other. And so the, like there doesn't seem to be any kind of like, Hey, we hooked up and now I'm hooking up with someone else. And like, it's not a problem, you know? Yeah. So that's good. Like a progressive sex positive, you know, kind of thing. So I have one last thing to say about, the world building of the Egyptians before we move on too much. Just just that I loved when the Magisterium was doing the raid on the boats looking for Lyra and John Fa was talking about the watercourse bill and how the Magisterium has no authority over the waterways. It made me wonder if maybe that was one of the reasons why the Egyptians live on boats, like basically to avoid Magisterium authority. Um, and I, yeah, I like that. I love that like little extra bit of world building maybe that, um, 
the reason why they went to the the waterways was just to try and avoid uh, the authority. So the law preceded the cultural practice of living in boats. Maybe, yeah. If if traditionally, like you know, the waterways were always like quote unquote international waters or whatever, or um, yeah, didn't have quite the same level of policing. They could have gone to there to try and get more freedom. It's interesting. I feel like maybe it was a bit of both because wasn't in the book. Wasn't that the law that Lord Azrael helped maintain, and that's why they respected him so much? Oh, mm-hmm. I must have missed that detail. Possibly. I, I yeah, they, think it was something like that. Okay. They say it in the same part. It is something like that. Oh, okay. So then I thought it was new. Apparently it was not new, but I still, I like that, that little mm-hmm. bit of world building. So it might have been that, like, they went to the waters because they could always move around and have some more freedom there. And then when it came to making a law about it, Lord Asriel, in the books at least, I don't know if this would be true in the show, you know, sort of stood up for them. Mm -hmm. Because I think think that was before he had his big, you know, everything was taken away from him and he he still had clout in politics. That seems weird that it's such a recent thing, though. Well, again, I don't think the law was necessarily made recently so much as he helped keep the law. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. In the book. In the book. Yeah, in the book. No, that's a good catch on the on that detail. That's very cool. So who's going to bring up teleology again? I really love how in our in the last two episodes, they've been completely free of teleology. And in this episode, we're like, wait, we got to make up for that. Yeah. <laughs> got to throw it all in. Everyone who's... Everybody who's been playing the teleology drinking game is way too sober. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe I should give a quick review of what teleology even is, because it seems like we have people who started listening with the show and not. And they know how to Google. It's basically, okay, how about I try and paraphrase it to you and you can tell me what I got wrong? All right. Because that's the best way to teach. That's right. Pedagogy. Yeah. <laughs> TM. I'm a certified pedagogue. Um, Okay, so teleology is basically the idea that you have some sort of ultimate purpose that you're supposed to be doing and that you can kind of like tap into that. And as long as you're doing like that thing that you're made to do, you'll be like a good person and a happy and fulfilled person. And if you're fighting against your purpose, you're an immoral person and like you won't be successful because you're not kind of doing what you're predestined to do in a way. It's like the the philosophy that like everything has its purpose and you'll always be better off if you're doing that purpose. Mm-hmm. Is that yeah. 90%, 85%? Yeah, I'd say so. It it comes from like Aristotle and and that was basically like his idea of how do you create like the perfect society and and like perfect the world and and it's uh you find like what is a thing made for and then you use it in the correct, you know, quote unquote, correct way. And then he just expanded that to apply to people and not just things. Or another way to say it, the way that I would say it is he turned people into things and he was like, oh, this makes people so much more convenient to deal with. Uh, not unlike Mrs. Coulter and her jackbooted uh, stormtroopers treat people yeah for example and, and so in the book right there's like this huge theme of teleology like 
Lyra is magically amazing at reading the alethiometer with no training, which is something that no one else can do. So, of course, she ends up with the alethiometer on this adventure and uses it to, you know, complete the the journey that she goes on in the book. And, you know, because she's made for the it. opening scene of the TV show is all about the prophecy. And so I just mm. found it really mm. interesting in this episode that Ma Costa tells her that she can be whatever she wants and the choice is hers and hers alone because that directly contradicts the theme of the book, which is that it's not Lyra's choice. She's just doing what she was destined to do and like fulfilling her purpose. Yeah. Is that the theme of the book though? It's I was going to say they say that like she has to believe that she has choices at least. Like she can't be told what she what she is or whatever. I also think there's something to be said about them saying she needs to fulfill her destiny in order to bring about an end of destiny. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like that's that's the larger and, story. Well, but I well, yeah, but that's an interesting thought that by doing her destiny, she can end destiny. Like yeah, you know, by not having choices, she's giving everyone else choices. Like Jesus. Like Jesus died so that we all could live. That's right. It's the same thing. <laughs> but with teleology Literally instead of mortality. I mean, it's just, I, that that is so, okay. So like the, the Catholic Church, you know, has the, the crusades that happen uh, in the 1100s and 1200s and stuff. And up until that point, there was no knowledge of Aristotle in Europe because you had the decline of knowledge from the collapse of the Roman Empire. When they run into the Satyrsids, the the Muslims in Jerusalem, those like that religion still had Plato and Aristotle, and they had been building on the philosophy of that in their own like culture. And that stuff was brought back to Europe and Europe rediscovered Aristotle and rediscovered this idea of teleology. To be very clear, Aristotle thought that like religion is bad. And that like teleology is a secular way to think about the world and order it in a way that like gets away from superstition and Christian theologians of the 1100s and 1200s read teleology and they were like, oh, wow, this is like exactly what we're saying. Like, this is Jesus. This is like you're predestined to like live out the way that you're supposed to and then boom, the world is a perfect place, just like Aristotle said. And so they just took all this Aristotelian thinking and like plugged it into Christianity. And that is like where you get a lot of like really terrible ideas come from the alchemy of combining those things together, including things like the geocentric, you know, model of the universe that we talked about in a previous episode. Like that's all Aristotle because like Aristotle believed that like the center of the earth is where Hades lives and all of the dead people are inside of the earth. So it's the most corrupt place in the universe is like in the earth. And then like the places that are the furthest away, like the sun are the most perfect places. And so that's why, you know, everything is like mathematically perfect in the sky and like everything is messed up on the earth. But it's really important because all of those damned souls are, uh, they have charge and they create the magnetic fields. 
around the earth <laughs> that protects us from that's right radi- sorry Great, okay no erase that <laughs> erase all of that <laughs> It's just like I don't know. Like I just love I that go we've talked about, about how- the, we've talked about uh, what the center of the Earth is composed of in two very different contexts now on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Aristotle's just full of bad ideas. I hate Aristotle so much. Like he is literally the worst. It's like sometimes like I'm afraid. Like oh, yeah, when I die, I'm definitely going to hell. And then I think you know. Aristotle's there and maybe I'll be able to hear him screaming as he's tortured. And that actually just makes me feel better about it. (laughs) Jeez. Okay. Wait, this reminds me of the scene. Good transition. (laughs) Where I know (laughs) where I think it's farter core. was like, want to go see that, that. Oh yeah. Do you want to go look at the torture? (laughs) There you go. And, and Lyra's just like, yeah, he deserves it. And I want to watch. Like, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. And I'm like, what adult makes this decision? Hello, little child. Want some torture in your life? I think he is, like, offering her a little bit of justice, though, right? This is the guy who kidnapped her specifically. That's true. But then, like, later on, like, we don't really see any of the torture. But we see Benjamin come out of the room and he's, like, out of breath. Yeah. Kind of sweaty. Like, what the fuck were you doing? Oh my god! Torture is hard work. Yeah. As somebody who recently did a rage room, yes, yes, it is. <laughs> Beating things up is indeed hard work. I actually really like that whole thing because I felt like it was showing kind of the emotional cost of committing violence on someone else, like the toll that it takes on you. And you see that with Mrs. Coulter too, the way that she's like just so fragile and crazy and manic in this episode after destroying the college and all of that stuff so i think that there's like we're not just getting like violence that is kind of what am i trying to say like like a spectacle like ooh yeah torture Mm, Mm -hmm. love that it's like you're also getting the consequences of that for everybody involved which is good to backtrack a little bit before the torture uh, I think that comes from the scene where Lyra and Farter Coram are talking on the boat. Mm-hmm. And I love it because we see Farter Coram and Pan talk. And yeah. I really like that bit. And they talk about how Lyra and Pan don't want Ly- or don't want Pan to settle. And I think that that's an important sentence to have in there. Yeah. So that, you know, later on when she's like, actually, I think I'd be okay with you settling down. It, it's a very clear difference. Well, and also this whole story is definitely a coming of age story. And so there Mm -hmm. needs to be some sort of anxiety about growing up. And that's like the clearest metaphor for that in this world. Yeah. And although when Pan walked over to Sofinax, Sofinax, Fartercorm's demon, in the book, he definitely would have changed into a cat right there. And I was waiting for it. And he didn't change into a cat. And I was like, oh, goddamn TV budget. <laughs> they already had the model from last episode when he was fighting the monkey as a cat. So, mm-hmm. I mean, my understanding is that probably the expensive part is building the model. And then once you have the model, just playing around with it is not as much work. But who do I, what do I know? I'm not a CGI technician. Or artist or whatever they are called. Me neither. No idea. 
Either way, I wish Pan had turned into a cat there, especially since they were talking about how they wanted him to keep changing. And, like, mostly we just see him as an ermine. Mm -hmm. Although at the end of the episode, when ermine Pan yawns, it's very, very cute. And I wanted to hug him. Yeah. He's very cute. He's cute in this episode a bunch of times, actually. Mm -hmm. I also love any time that Pan sounds kind of affronted about something Lyra has said about him. I love Pan so much. How do you feel about the voice acting? It's fine. I feel like we haven't gotten very much, like we haven't really gotten anything emotional or like difficult from him yet. Yeah. I guess the one scene that I really liked with Lan and Lan and Pyra, uh, (laughs) the one scene that I really liked with Pan and Lyra was their kind of like banter while she was getting fitted for the dresses last episode. Yeah. Um, And that was the one time that I felt his personality really came through with the voice acting. But yeah, I'm, it's not that I don't like him. I just feel like they haven't given him a lot to do. Oh yeah, definitely. Although like they have been using him visually a bit more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's nice. But yeah, I do hope we get some good, just Lyra and Pan talking. Oh, like I'm trying to think all my favorite Pan book, Pan moments from the book don't really include talking. It's more like actions that he takes or or things that he turns into in response to a scenario. So it'll be interesting to see how they translate that on screen. The two moments I'm thinking of are not in, in this book. The probably the best moment from this episode, as far as that goes, is the alethiometer scene at the end where he's like, pan is like, okay, try to blank your mind out again. And then oh, yeah. she's doing it, and then he's like, it's working, it's working. But there's also that bit where she says, like, I just have to make my mind go blank. And he's like, that should be easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, good old Pan. I'm glad that you found something interesting to say about that, because I feel like it's a hugely important plot point. But also, I was just like, she got it to work. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I think that scene is, like, beautifully shot. The way that, like, it shows the reflection of it in her eye. Yeah, when it turns on, I did notice that my second time through. That Okay, so my question for you or the the question that I had while watching that scene was, do you think that is reflecting reality? Like does the alethiometer actually emit light or is that just sort of like trying to convey the feeling of what's happening? I mean, I loved the effect, but my inclination was to take it metaphorically. Yeah, it seemed very, like, inside of her head in that moment, or, like, emotionally true, but maybe not literally. Yeah, which yeah, it was, like, it. such an interesting choice. I, I love it when mm-hmm. shows do things like that. I really want to see a scene with her, like, reading the alethiometer and Pan sitting in her lap with his paws on it, and they're both looking at it, because I feel like that was how they normally did it in the book. Mm. And I get that they don't have... Like, again, budget-wise, they don't have that much contact, but I'd really like to see that. It's just such a, it's just how I picture it every time when I read it in the book. No, that's, yeah, that would, it feels iconic when you say that. I would, that mm-hmm. would be great. So each time, you know, that we've had the television episode, I've been talking about Moses. And so I think that this metaphor or like connection, that's not really a metaphor, this connection uh, between Lyra and Moses like continues in uh, this episode. And so like in the story of Moses, we talked about last time how he 
finds out that he is a Hebrew person um, after he kills one of the guards or the slave masters that is like whipping a Hebrew slave and he kills him. He has to run away because he finds out that he himself is a Hebrew. And so he's got to get out of there because he'll be killed, um, even though he was raised by the Egyptian royalty. And so after Moses leaves, he gets uh, he goes deep into the Hebrew culture and like learns about his roots and his culture. He gets married. And while he is a shepherd out in a mountain range far away from Egypt, one day uh, a bush like catches on fire and won't stop burning. And when he goes to check it out, the voice of God starts to speak to him and tell him about his destiny and his mission um, and that he needs to go back to Egypt and um, free the Hebrew people from slavery, tells him about his destiny. And in this episode, we get a similar kind of thing where Lyra finds out about her personal history, her connection to all the events that have happened in the past and all the important people like Lord Asriel and Mrs. Coulter, and, um, and also has this supernatural connection with the alethiometer where we see at the beginning of the episode, this extremely thick book that is not unbible like um, <laughs> in its thickness. Um, better illustrations. And, <laughs> yeah. Much better illustrations. The thing looks like a demonology book or something. Um, and we, we see that to be able to read this thing, you need to like have that book and that it takes a lot of time to interpret any kind of message from it. But it seems that Lyra gets it instantaneously or miraculously, Mm -hmm. some kind of spiritual connection, like the burning bush, the way that Moses can hear the voice of God when no one else can, because he is destined and fated for that purpose. And so... And she's going to rescue her people, which are children. Which are children, right. And that's what they leave at the end of the episode to go do, right? They're... They're going after those kids in the north. They know where they're at now. And just like Moses is going back to the Hebrews to to free them. Uh, and, you know, like this story has a very like well-earned, um, you know, reputation of being critical of religion and religious figures and stuff like that. So why am I making all of these connections between Moses and Lyra when like, you know, this story would otherwise say that like they're bad, you know, religion is bad or like patriarchs from the Bible are a bad thing, or this is an irrational thing to believe in that would kind of like pervert our culture in bad ways. That might be what you would think, you know, given the reputation of the book. And the reason that I think there is this connection is because this is like a time honored thing to do to adapt characters that come from a tradition that you're trying to criticize because that's exactly who Moses is as a character in history in terms of like Moses is a reference to other important patriarchs from societies that oppressed the Hebrew people in their own time. And those people would have specifically known those references that would not have like gone over their head the way that it does for us as modern people, because we don't know all of the references. It's kind of like the being in the story there and Pharaoh saying like, I will make Egypt great again. That would not like go over our head, right? We would know exactly what you're talking about. And in the same way, Moses going down the Nile River in a basket of reeds would 
that that is not something that started with Moses. That is a reference to the most famous Mesopotamian king in history named Sargon the Great. That's how his story starts. It's exactly the same. He's born to uh, a virgin priestess who realizes that she has been touched by the gods with uh, a child who will have a great destiny and that she cannot have this child with her because she's supposed to be a virgin. So she needs to get rid of it so that it can have its destiny and not be killed for you know, the sake of her becoming miraculously pregnant. And so she creates a basket of reeds, puts Sargon in it, and sends him down the river. And then he is raised to become the greatest military leader in early Mesopotamian history. And he builds the first empire in Mesopotamian history, maybe the first empire in human history. Um, He's like a manly man, like he's kind of like a Conan the Barbarian type. He's very cunning. Um, He's deceitful, but like in a ruthless way that like gets the job done. He's an excellent fighter, a military commander, and he is like what every man aspires to in Mesopotamia. Like you're, he's the manliest man who ever manned. And so the, the Akkadians who he was the king of conquered the Hebrews. And then the people who wanted to be like Sargon, the great who came after him, the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And finally the Persians all conquered the Hebrews. Boom, boom, boom. uh, And shattered their culture. And so to start the story in the same way of Moses as Sargon, that's not like a Hebrew writer or storyteller accidentally doing that or doing that in a way to like, oh, I'm, I'm going to, this was a really cool plot point. I'm going to sneak it in here and nobody's going to know what I'm doing. This is make Egypt great again. This is like saying a thing that would, everybody would know what you're saying. And, and what they're saying is you think a great man is someone who conquers other people. No, this is what a great man is. Someone who cares about the truth and about God and about his people and who does not use violence to conquer, but uses the truth and who doesn't rely on his own strength, but relies on the strength of God. And that is who Moses is. And that is what a real man is not Sargon the great. I think in the same way, Lyra is a criticism of patriarchal, biblical leaders like Moses, of like, this is where you think the truth comes from? No, this is what truth is. This is what morality is. That's what Lyra is doing by appropriating the kind of character of who Moses is in the Bible, I think. But just by being a young girl instead of like a middle-aged dude? No, by where her story goes, contrasted with Moses in the same way that Moses's story starts the same as Sargon's, but then deviates on purpose. I see. You can see that like Moses follows a certain set of rules and does things a certain way that Lyra absolutely does not do. And this is one of those situations where I can't say anything because I haven't read past book one. Well, just even in book one. Like Moses, what is one of the things that Moses brings down from the mountain in the Ten Commandments? Don't lie. 
I see. That is not Lyra. Lyra is Like, that is not how she is moral. Yeah. And it's moral when she lies, right? Mm -hmm. It's the right thing to do. That's not an accident. That's not Pullman like, oh, I tripped into this Moses thing. Like, he is deliberately um, creating a link between these characters and then subverting uh, what is moral and what isn't in in his hero i see yeah she's she's a liar and she's not obedient to the people who are telling her what to do yeah and she doesn't do things because god says this is what you should do like you know she has like her own moral compass that she's following Mm -hmm. like a golden compass inside (laughs) of her (laughs) i was gonna say i also think that as for like why he might make these connections and comparisons between these biblical characters and stuff. I don't think Philip Pullman has a problem with, oh, I don't know how to say this. Like, I think he has a problem with religion as a controlling force. Mm-hmm. I don't think he has a problem with faith or with the stories or, or even with like religion as just like a, if, if, if Christianity existed as not a, a controlling force, if that makes any sense. I know it's mm-hmm. kind of, built that way but because i actually think the later books have a lot to say about faith and religion being different yes yeah i agree it's so i think that's part of the reason why it's important for it to be moses because he is like literally like the lawgiver and the kind of the origin of like okay now we're gonna go out and conquer a nation like we were we were slaves we were these weak people and now we're gonna leave and then like the thing that happens after Moses is they start conquering people and like killing entire people groups so that they can take over their land because it's the promised land. And so like uh, to me that's like the I Moses established the religion and then genocide afterwards. You know what I mean? <laughs> like so th- this is like what the magisterium is. Um it takes an idea and then perverts it into an institution that's fascist. I do also think it's interesting that like we've compared Lyra to both Moses and Jesus in this episode. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because later on in the books, like Philip Pullman very not even in a metaphorical or anything way, he expressly says, No, Lyra is this biblical character. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. not either of those ones. Right. So maybe she's just everyone. Oh, I mean the Bible is that way too. Because like <laughs> it's like uh you know, it will be like, oh, Moses is actually like a prefiguring of Jesus who, you know, right. and, and all that kind of stuff. So so we forgot to do this at the beginning, um, but does anyone want to talk about their least favorite part? Yes. <laughs> so quick to jump <laughs> on it, Kate. <laughs> Look, in the second book, there's a bit where somebody suggests to Lyra that she put on some trousers and she is like, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm going to put on this skirt right here. <laughs> and I, and in this show, they just like put her in some pants. And I really love this idea that this like half wild Arctic exploring bear facing down girl is, I will wear a skirt or nothing. So I'm just, I'm a little bit disappointed <laughs> that they're just like, here, put on some pants. She's like, yeah, okay. I mean, to be fair, I think they were technically overalls, uh, which Ma Costa also pulls off amazingly, but. I I see your point. (laughs) 
I mean, to be fair, I think even in the book in the North, she's wearing like snow pants over her skirt, but she still has a skirt on. Shouldn't it be under? I mean. Not if they're like big, thick, uh, like animal skin things. She would put, you would put that on over your clothes, like a jacket over your legs. That's fair. That just sounds uncomfortable, though, like having a skirt shoved into pant legs, but. 100%, but she never wears pants, so. Or at least I assume she doesn't, because in the second book, she makes this big-ass deal about it. Spoilers. Very important spoilers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've, spoilers. I've just ruined the whole plot of book two. <laughs> it's the main conflict. Oh, my God. <laughs> this, episode ru- <laughs> this episode ruins more about the plot of book two than, than that conversation. Yeah. Oh, the part about Grumman? Yeah. And his wife and son. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my least favorite part about this episode, and this is such a tiny nitpicky thing, but Benjamin doesn't bleed when he gets fucking shot, and it made me so mad. <laughs> like it's, I assume they're trying to keep the rating down. I guess, but it just seems unrealistic to get shot and not have any blood on the floor, and it's already pretty violent, and they, you know, have fun with torture. I'm, I just think, like, a little bit of corn syrup and food coloring would have gone a long way. I agree. And it also it also is very similar to the Narnia movies, which also oh, have very like, much <laughs> did not have any blood in them. Huge battle scenes and like, no blood. Yeah. And I'm just like I almost said Philip Pullman is turning over in his grave, but he's very much alive. But whatever the alive version of that is. Uh shaking fist at the universe. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. You think Philip Pullman uh, is a fan of blood and gore? I just mean he's upset at all the Narnia similarities as opposed to... Oh, I see. As opposed right. to being a contrast. No. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a least favorite part, Alan? I'm trying to think of one. I'm bad at um, this kind of thing. I have a hard time with it. The The show is like really good at firing so nicely. You could talk about the fact that the Egyptians use the phrase safe as houses when they don't even live in houses. Oh, yeah, that does bother me. So, yeah, at one point, Ma Costa says um, that they'll be safe as houses, which is like totally a saying. I don't know if that's a British saying or not. I've I've heard it many, many times, though. It's John Fah who says it, isn't it? I, I don't know. Like, I've heard that saying from all kinds of places before. It's like totally a, a thing. But it's like they don't have houses. They have boats. So I don't know. Do they uh, do they think houses are more safe? But like you know, safest houses is like a investment thing. It's like that's oh, the safest I, investment. You just blew my mind. I had no idea uh, that was related to money at all. Oh, it's a, that's totally a money thing. Yeah, yeah. Tio. It's like the only safe investment. This is if there's one thing that I get out of this podcast episode, it's going to be that. That did bother me. It like it threw me out each time I watched the episode. She says, "Oh, we'll be safe as houses," and I'm like, "Yeah, that is a saying, Ma Costa. But you live in a boat." I just actually hate that phrase because it's never made any sense to me. <laughs> well, uh, also, like, why is she giving financial? They're they're not financial wizards, clearly. <laughs> they definitely don't invest in houses. No. Oh, oh. Also, during the big. The big speech. John Foss says something like, raise a tax, muster a levy. And I'm like, those two things mean the same thing. <laughs> Why did you yell both of them? <laughs> Literally the exact same. That bothers it's like me. a Mel Brooks joke where you yeah. just say the same thing over and over. Okay. Well, maybe we should just change the name of that to our nitpicking section. 
I'm glad that you picked mine out. Yeah. I never would have thought that. Well, I was just like scrolling through the doc looking for things in red text. Like, what's negative here? <laughs> <laughs> well, that wraps up our conversation for today. Next time, we'll be talking about episode four, Armor. If you want to avoid spoilers, now's the time to say goodbye. And if you like our show, please take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me on Twitter at Inferior Caitlin. Follow the show on Twitter at M-O-T-Pod, so you can live tweet Monday night uh, when HBO shows the next episode at 9 Eastern Standard Time. Need more than 280 characters to speak your mind? Send your email to contact at hollowedgroundmedia.com. And we promise we will be responding to listener feedback very soon. Um, We've been collecting it. Uh, We just have been focusing our effort on watching the episodes right now. Um, And we're about to run out of early access episodes. So we're going to do a feedback episode as soon as we get the chance. Because you're all very special. Yes. (coughs) And all of your comments are very special as well. Everyone's special! Now for some spoilers. So, okay, I'm going to talk about Mrs. Coulter Heights and her teleological purpose. You're welcome, everyone. All right. <laughs> so here's the thing. Oh, you know what? I'll just brief mention we get a we get our first look at Will in this episode. Wait, yeah. really? In the in the yeah in the mm-hmm. photo of him. The photo. Oh, Will is Grumman's son. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I see. I don't remember anything. <laughs> so that that was cool. That was good to see. Uh, I'm Do excited. I need to not listen to this? No, so here's the thing about what I'm going to do about this. I am talking about some book three stuff. I didn't look up anything so that I don't have as much information in my head as I could have, and I'm going to be as vague as possible. So why I like Mrs. Coulter and her thing about heights. In the third book, there's a bit where Mrs. Coulter has to go talk to somebody, and she does, and it's very reminiscent of Lyra talking to Yofra Rackneson. She has to like lie to this dude, and then she comes back, and she's talking to somebody else about it, And she says, he looked into my soul and he found nothing but lies and wickedness because that's all there is or something like that. Again, I didn't look it up. And in this one, in the show here, we're seeing more of Mrs. Coulter than lies and wickedness. Yeah, we Mm -hmm. really are. You know, so I like that they're putting in this thing with heights because the books imply that Mrs. Coulter is the way she is the lies and the wickedness because of that moment, because she has to go lie to that person Mm. because, and that is her, her teleological purpose. Interesting. Wait, but what is that that moment? I'm getting to that. Okay. That moment leads to, uh, shit leads to a thing with heights. Okay. I, I can't say any more than that. I like how this isn't really a spoiler zone. It's like a semi spoiler zone. I mean, you could take your, Anybody who knows what I'm talking about knows what I'm okay. talking about. I could say, no, I can't. I don't want to spoil everything for you. It it leads to her ultimate destiny. And so I like that they're putting in this thing with heights and how she's always felt the need to jump. Mm-hmm. 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 Because that is her teleological purpose. Uh-huh. Interesting. I thought there might be jumping involved, but... I'm glad to keep it. I was trying not to say that word, but it happened. (laughs) My brain was already there, so you did it. Yeah, I figured you were. Yeah. And I I feel like last episode, when we met the dude that Lord Lord Boreal talks to in the other world, 
I think I was like, what if this is the dude that, that Will kills? But I'm actually pretty sure that the new dude that we met in it's this the, yeah. episode, he's probably going to be the dude that Will kills. Wait, who's the new guy? Mm-hmm. The new guy who we gave like the information to about, about Grumman. Did we hear Grumman's real name in this? Stanislaus. They said it out loud. No. No, his, his no. real name. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, Perry. John Perry? Yeah, yeah, they John do. Perry, okay, okay, I didn't remember. Yeah, because he knows, like, his whole military record, and he's like, yes. he went to Alaska. Oh, you think the tech nerd is going to die? No, no, that's what I thought oh. last time. This time, I think it's going to be the new dude who yeah. Boreal met, like, under a bridge or something. Because it would be that... The, do I not remember <laughs> on the, one the hand, scene? Like, who... who it would be a bad call to like send that tech dude to yeah. do the yeah. He's <laughs> but not brave It would make enough. sense also that he would die. Yeah, but and so. it also he specifically said here, you know, spy on these people for me. Oh, right, right, right. And yeah, that bridge. I th- interpreted it as a swimming pool. I don't know why there was like. Oh, it might have been. I don't know. It was dark. Of the water. Yeah. Um, but maybe it was a river. I assumed it was raining and not a or a river I guess. pool or something. Um, yeah, I don't know. I was like, "That's a weird place to do secret spy stuff <laughs> next to a swimming pool." <laughs> I think I just completely <laughs> visually misinterpreted that scene. <laughs> so I'm excited for season two. If we don't have to wait a year for it, that would really suck. Especially since I know it's already filmed, and they would just be sitting on it. Yeah, I'm sure they'll <sighs> they'll make us wait a little bit, but hopefully they won't make us wait too long. Yeah, and I'm glad to hear that episode one got some good numbers. Oh, yeah, in terms of yeah. viewers. Not our episode and, and one, viewers, the yes. real episode one. Yes, sorry, episode one of the TV show. Because even if this podcast fails, I still want to watch <laughs> seasons two and three. I don't know by what metric the podcast would fail. Yeah, that's, I mean... We can just talk into the emptiness I, of the internet forever. That's fair. My mind immediately went to some dark places about how the podcast would fail. That definitely included my death. Oh, so. no! <laughs> Anything else spoiler-wise that I want to talk about is, like, way too spoilery, so let's just leave it. And it's more that I just want to talk about it. It didn't really have any bearing on the episode. Yeah, I can't think of anything. The book two stuff is really obvious if you if you know that. And then, and then it's like, are we ever, are we going to, is that it? Or are we going to come back to this in the next one and just start fucking book two? Or, like, what? It's weird. Maybe I'll try and read book two if we don't get any more early access episodes, and then we can turn this into a a more real spoiler section. Almost everything that I've talked about, though, is book three in the spoiler section, which I think is hilarious. Although, I guess the the stuff about Will is book two. Yeah, they're folding in a lot of, like, book two stuff. In with like Boreal and and everything, and him crossing over into our world, and like I didn't talk about like how the I feel like the the tickets that he gets, and then the boot. I love like, how he's like mystified by the boot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like that it shows like the passage of time, just so it's completely clear to anybody who doesn't know what this story is, like hasn't read. Or, you know, like you could interpret what's going on as like, oh, it's a weird time travel gate. Like he went into the future that looks like our world or something like that. Mm, And that's not what's happening. Like it makes it very clear uh, that that's not what's happening. And so Mm -hmm. like you can tell that like Lyra lives in like 2019. It's just like a 1930s version of 2019 or something. 
he does seem like mystified by the boot, but like he gets around, so he must get his car unbooted. So I also think that that and the ticket show that he has some influence on that side of the world, or at least money. It's yeah, not easy yeah, to money. like get unbooted right away because he's got a fancy car. He knows how to use an iPhone. Like mm-hmm. that's the weirdest thing for me. Mm-hmm. Like he didn't seem mystified. Like when he sat down at the computer, he didn't really seem to know what he was doing. But he was fine with his phone. He keeps a charger in his car so that when he gets there, he can charge it right away. That's funny. It's very smart. I did notice, though, that like he seemed very adept at using a mouse and keyboard. And if you've ever tried to teach an old person how to do that, who like didn't grow up with it, like trying to teach the my grandparents in like the mid 90s how to like do email with a desktop computer. Which, oh, I was just like, that's unrealistically easy for him. Well, the thing I always interpreted Boreal is like, if he came over to this world, he would immediately, like, I don't think he got somebody to teach him. I think he was determined to yeah. have power and influence on this world. I see. And to do that, he needed to blend in. So he just like walked into a cafe and was like, hey, kid, teach me how to use that magic light box. <laughs> I also feel like if you sit down at a computer, I mean, and you're not a complete dunce, you'll get it eventually. All I can think about is like Scotty from Star Trek in the one with the whales when he picks up the mouse and is like, computer, do blah, 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 blah. Like he speaks into it the way that Lyra does the alethiometer. And then they're like, that's not how that works, Scotty. That's from like like, the other side of things. Yeah, exactly. He's like, oh, I don't know how to work these primitive computers. Like, Oh, how quaint. I have to type it in. I see. Okay, and I think that that is it for this week. So we will see you all next week. And don't forget to keep the hateful gestures from your mom as a symbol of her desperation. What a podcast. Do you want to talk about Moses? <laughs> oh, yeah. Torture is hard work. Do you want to, Do you want to talk about Moses? <laughs>